0: Well, this morning as part of our worship, we uh, engaged in personal reflection and confession of sin, and we noted that great promise in scripture that's found in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In my own experience of God, and as I've helped other people think about and learn about what it means to walk with God, I have found that the Uh, topic of confession of sins can sometimes bring more confusion than clarity to people. Sometimes it's even people who might have grown up in a background where sin's confession of sin was every part of a worship service, a part of every worship service, who have a lot of questions about what it means. And uh, it might even cause people to feel distant from God because there's a whole bunch of questions that swirl around the topic of confessing sins. For example, If when I accepted Jesus as my Savior, I confessed my sins, why would I need to do that again? Is it that he only forgave my past sins, like all the sins that I brought to him up to that point in my life, and then from that point on, forgiveness is dependent on confessing my sins. Like if I don't, I won't be forgiven. Um, Do I have to confess my sins in order to be forgiven, like all of my sins? What if I forget some? What if I don't recognize some as being sin? Can I know that I'm really forgiven if the Bible tells me to confess my sins on a regular basis and to experience God's forgiveness? How do I know that I've confessed enough? What if I die with unconfessed sin? That's a big one that many people struggle with. So, I mean, there's all kinds of questions about confession of sin and forgiveness. And if you've ever thought about any of those things, if you've ever had those questions, this passage is tailor-made for you because it's the subject. It's the whole point of what Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet. Because of our natural inability to, to easily grasp forgiveness, and I don't just mean intellectually to understand it, but to experience a sense of being cleansed from our sin. Because we, we seem to be have a natural ability to do that, Jesus gave us this physical illustration, and in the context of it, taught some important things about forgiveness when he washed his disciples' feet. Now, I'd like you to open your Bible again and turn to John chapter 13 so that we can look carefully at a couple of the verses. While you're turning there, let me just note that the Gospel of John is different from the other Gospels. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic Gospels, usually. That's because they they see together. They are very similar in that they're mostly chronological, and they cover many of the same uh, incidences and the same order in Jesus' life. But the Gospel of John, which apparently was written later, was um, a a, a different Gospel. It, It approaches things more theologically than it does chronologically. For example, the first 12 chapters, which are the first half of the book, are all built around seven signs, seven of Jesus' miracles. And these miracles are each described, and then there's teaching that is either long or short that is meant to unpack the significance of that miracle. But the turning point of the book is in chapter 13 and verse 1. You turn to the second half of the book, which deals with the last night and the last day of Jesus' life. Until you get to the last chapter, The next seven chapters are going to deal only with the next 24 hours, starting at the Last Supper in the Upper Room in Jerusalem. So we read in verse 1, Now before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. And that's the most important statement. It tells you that now we're moving in a different direction. Now Jesus has come to understand that he's, he's about to wrap up his whole purpose for being here. He's come to put together in his human nature, all of the things that are happening and his realization that he is the Messiah and his purpose for life, he, he's come to, to face now the end that he is about to experience, which he knows before the Father is the reason for which he was sent into the world. He realized a couple of things, one is that he knew that his hour had come probably because of uh, the events that were unfolding, the triumphal entry which had happened four days before, and the different experiences that had culminated in the end of the opposition to him and it become settled rebellion that he knew would result in his uh, arrest. But he also knew what it says in verse two that Judas had beside decided to betray him. Verse two doesn't say that uh, Judas that Jesus knew that. It only says that Satan had entered Jesus's heart or had. Uh, put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, excuse me, to betray him. But later it becomes apparent that Jesus knew this, and that obviously was significant. He knew that he was about to be betrayed. And so you come to this, this apex of the whole ministry of Jesus that's going to be described in great detail in the next seven chapters. But it starts here in verse 1. You need to know none of this came upon Jesus' surprise. He was not simply a supremely good man who uh, made some mistakes in saying the wrong things in front of the wrong people and got caught up in events politically and was put to death. There's none of that in the New Testament. This was the chosen course, the purpose of his life, that he knew that he was destined to fulfill, that he would be betrayed by one of his closest friends, that he would be tried, and die on the cross, and rise from the dead. And he came to fulfill it. It was his chosen, purposeful, eternally planned course. And it shows the way in which he loved his own to the end, to the very end of everything the Father had given him to do. Now, before we look at the passage, I want to note something about it, uh, just about the Gospel of John. When I, I learned to read Greek many, many years ago, and I I happened to take it, you would have a whole semester of work, like 15 weeks. I took a semester in five weeks during the summer, so every day of class, three days a week, was a week of material. So it was pretty concentrated. You didn't take any other classes. You know, obviously, all you were doing was learning Greek, and had two five-week sessions to do that, and I'll never forget that uh, after we'd been through the first two weeks of material, on the third day of class, Friday of the first week, the teacher of the class had a get our Greek New Testament out. We'd had to buy it for the class. None of us could read it, you know, and open up our Greek New Testament to John chapter 1. And together, we read, not just read the Greek words, because we'd learned the alphabet, but we read the, uh, the sentence and translated it, a sentence in John chapter 1. And the reason that that's probably done in wherever, wherever they teach uh, Greek, New Testament Greek, is that John, the Gospel, is written in the simplest Greek found in the New Testament. has the smallest vocabulary of all the books of the New Testament and with a few exceptions, a very simple sentence structure and all that. However, if you've ever read the Gospel of John or the letters of John or the Revelation, you realize that it's not easy to understand. The simplicity of his language sort of belies the fact that he uses symbols that go in a lot of different directions and they're very rich and full. And this is one of those places when he washes feet. He actually points the significance of what he does in washing feet in three different directions that we want to think about here this morning. Now, we open it up to the Last Supper, this intimate setting in which Jesus meets with the apostles in an upper room in Jerusalem. We are not in any of the accounts, which are found in all four Gospels, to picture that there were servants involved in this. This was a family meal with Jesus and the twelve. They reclined, that is, they laid on the floor around a low-set table, which would have been the way that you uh, ate a formal meal in the ancient world. But John alone records the fact that they didn't wash their feet on coming in and that Jesus washed their feet. So it says, if you look at verse 4, he rose rose from supper. And then it says he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, he dressed himself as a slave. It means that he took off his clothing down to his undergarment and he wrapped a towel around him, a large towel, and then he took a basin of water and he began to go one by one to the apostles and to wash their feet. It's interesting that the passage implies, the way it's written, that there was dead silence while this occurred until he got to Peter. We'll get to that in a moment, but there's a reason why that is true, for Jesus to dress himself as the most menial of servants and to wash the disciples' feet. Well, you need to understand that uh, in the ancient world, and this is easy to understand, people did not wear closed-toed shoes as we do. They wore open-toed sandals. Uh, uh, the, The climate was not like in Michigan, not as cold as Michigan, but it got cold during the winter. However, you were living in an environment where the streets were mostly not paved, even in large cities. And even taking a short journey uh, across a city, you would get the mire of the streets, which included not only dirt and dust, but all kinds of filth because the sanitary conditions of ancient cities were not like we think of today. And so a person walking a short distance would uh, easily pick up dirt on their feet, and it was customary to wash your feet on entering a home. In most homes, just normal homes that we would think of middle class, uh, you you would provide a bowl of water, a basin of water, and a towel by the doorway for those who entered to wash their feet. And you would wash your own feet upon entering in. If you were in a more wealthy home, a servant would be provided to do this, whose sole purpose was to wash the feet of guests. Among the Jewish people, they uh, did not allow a Jewish servant to wash feet because it was considered such a menial task. They only allowed Gentile servants to do it. I, I found out this week there's a doctoral dissertation, that's like a long paper, maybe five or 600 pages, written in the 1990s, so just 20 years ago, by a man in Sheffield, England, and it was uh, called Foot Washing in the New Testament. I thought, how do you come up with 500 pages of material <laughs> on footwashing in the New Testament? And it sounds like th- this would be... Um, you know, just kind of a waste of time. But what was so interesting was one of his conclusions, which had had kind of lent light to this passage. One of his conclusions uh, is this, there is no instance in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. Now, that probably sounds like a so what statement to most of you, but uh, You need to understand, we have extremely extensive records of the the ancient world, much more than you imagine. Tens of thousands of parchments, pieces of paper, little shards of pottery with things written on them that are kept in famous universities, and uh, many monasteries in the East are full of these things. And people have cataloged all these and used them. So what this guy is saying is, in the ancient world, where people wrote uh, usually in one of three languages, Greek, Latin, or Hebrew, um, in all of those sources that have been studied, there is never an example of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. In fact, you wouldn't even wash the foot feet of a friend. You, you would let him wash his own feet if you didn't have a servant to do it. So it kind of explains why Jesus came into this setting and no one washed feet. No one seems to have said, at least it's not recorded, hey, where's the water? We need to wash our feet. I guess they just figured if there's not water, they were just going to go ahead and and not worry about it. But Jesus himself gets down. And then you might wonder, well, why did it take him going through a few of these people before he gets to Peter who says, do you wash my feet? Why did they not say anything? Well, the reason is that uh, you need to understand we're coming to the culmination of Jesus' life. And he wasn't one of the guys at this point these men knew that he was a very significant per- person. They didn't fully grasp what it was he was about to do. They didn't understand everything it meant for him to be the Messiah, but they knew he was the Jewish Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. And by this time, they were pretty used to Jesus doing things that were odd and socially uncomfortable and saying things that they just would, they'd scratch their head and not understand. They were pretty used to that. And so they weren't going to say much if they were like most people. So you picture Jesus dressing like a slave, taking this water, and uh, an uncomfortable silence descends over the room as he begins to wash and dry the feet of the apostles one by one. And they're all sitting there, uncomfortable. And Judas says, awkward, awkward. And you're not surprised when it it takes getting to Peter before finally somebody says something. Now, Peter's the guy in the New Testament who blurts out things all the time. I'm not like that. You may have noticed that. I don't know. But my wife used to say uh, to me things like, honey, why do you love me? And I'd say, well. (laughs) And she'd go, he doesn't love me. Okay, now, you know, I was thinking about it. I wanted to say something significant. I'm not a person who just says, because you're pretty, you know, or something that you're going to say, well, just because I'm pretty. I was trying to think of something, and and sometimes it really caught up with me. I don't blurt things out. I find people annoying who blurt things out. But I have found they can be a real help on a team because they're the person who will say something everyone else is thinking, you know but isn't willing to say. And that's what happens here. He's going around. He's washing the apostles' feet. No one's saying anything. But um, he comes to Peter, and there's like three interchanges between Jesus and Peter. Three questions, or one is a statement, and three answers that Jesus gives. The answers are all significant, require a little bit of thought. So he comes to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Obviously in recognition. Superiors don't wash the feet of inferiors. What in the world is going on here? And I want you to note what Jesus says to him because it's, it takes a little thought to unpack it. Jesus says, verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand it. Now what he's saying is, you can't grasp what I'm doing. You have too many misunderstandings of things to see the full significance of what's happening when I'm taking water and washing your feet. He's obviously saying, what I am doing is pointing beyond the literal action. If you wanted, you know, just to have an example of being humble, they could have understood that. Jesus could have said, "I, I want to give you an example of humble service. In fact, he does apply it that way later in the passage. But that obviously was not the main point. He was doing something of symbolic significance that Peter couldn't grasp at that point. And there were at least two reasons why the apostles couldn't grasp this. The first was the obvious one. When Jesus started washing feet, what would have been going through their mind is, what's wrong with this picture? What in the world is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord of Glory, doing washing our feet. It doesn't happen that way. Slaves do that work. That would have entered their minds, but there's something that you have to dig a little deeper to think about. This overshadowed the whole night, in fact, the whole week before Jesus died, and even the events that followed until after the resurrection. They didn't understand what was happening, and it's hard for us to grasp that, because we look back through lenses that know about the resurrection and understand what Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament, they were trying to put that together. You know, they kept thinking to themselves, we didn't hitch our wagon to the star of a dead Messiah. So Jesus had been talking about, I'm going to die, I'm going to be arrested, things that they were hearing, but it just didn't fit into their understanding. And so they would think things like, Now, maybe he's being figurative again. You know, Jesus did use symbols, right? Maybe he's talking symbolically about something at this point. They couldn't understand. It's like it hangs like a cloud over everything that goes on in the last week. But what's happening here is is if they were incapable of understanding why this Jesus whom they venerated as the Messiah was going to die, If they were incapable of understanding that, what Jesus is saying in the sentence is, it, it follows that you can't even understand a symbolic action that points to that death. You won't be able to understand this until he says, afterward. After the resurrection, when they finally came to understand and put it together, it's like all these things fell together in a line in their minds, like all the tumblers of a lock inside come to line up and the lock falls open. That all happened after the resurrection when they looked back and said, that's what he meant when he said that. And that's what Jesus is saying to him here. So, so uh, Peter then blurted something out in the next sentence. You shall never wash my feet. Like, I'm not going to allow this to happen. It's not proper for the Messiah to wash my feet. And what Jesus says to him, again, has great significance. He says in verse uh, 9, excuse me, 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The word share means inheritance, or it's to receive a portion of inheritance. And essentially, Jesus is saying to him, listen, it, it, the spiritual significance of what I'm doing right now in washing your feet has to do with your eternal salvation. If you do not allow me to wash your feet, or at least what this points towards, if you do not allow that, you will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. You have no place with me in the kingdom I am about to inherit from the Father. So Peter responds, okay, if this is about eternal salvation, this foot washing deal that you're doing here, then um, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Now he could simply mean, then give me a bath. But it's interesting that he notes the hands and the head. They are the three parts of the body. We only have two today that are open right, and visible. They're the two parts of the body that can become dirtied. If the feet represent in the ancient world, which were open to the world, if they represent your journey through this world and picking up dirt during the course of your life or your pilgrimage, the hands represent the way in which you work and the head the way in which you think. We don't know whether he has any significance to that, but he's certainly saying, "I I want some total cleansing that will make me able and fit for God. And then Jesus says, finally, the most significant thing, verse 10. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Now, this is very important. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. And Jesus is, as very often in the the Gospel of John, using a literal understanding of some physical truth but he's implying that there's something much deeper that's involved in this just like the whole the whole thing you can't understand this now says to Peter this has spiritual significance this isn't just cleansing dirt off your feet this has some significance that you're not able to grasp yet but you're going to grasp it in the same way saying the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet points to some application of this action that he's doing in washing their feet. Now, imagine that you go to work one day, and you get up in the morning, and you take a shower, and you get dressed, and you go to your place of business. Or you work in, a, in a, a, a business that has like offices in front and uh, places where things are designed, and then behind it, there's a shop, like a small factory in which these things are made. Let's say that the things you make are called danglers. This was my father's business. And uh, a dangler is like used in the electroplating industry. It's a piece of neoprene cable with a copper thing on one end and and like a a steel head that's crimped onto the other end. And uh, these have to be replaced constantly in electroplating. And so you can, a a chimpanzee could make them most of the time, you know. and uh, when I was in ninth grade, that's what we had to start doing. We had to start making danglers. And, uh, but imagine you work there. You work in the front office, and you design the, the things. And it has to do with how long it is, and especially with the head kind of thing that's crimped onto it that makes an electrical contact with something in the plating industry. Imagine that the, the, you have to design one of a certain shape and size that will then slip onto this neoprene cable, and it will be pressed on. And, and you send the design out, and the guy out who's at the boring mill, he's making these, these things, this little piece of metal that's bored out in the middle, you know, and he, he's working on it. But this one, with the design you gave me, can't... It's not coming out right. He keeps making it. So he calls you and you go out in the shop and you go up to the machine with him and you start looking at it with him. He's showing you how he's making it. And sure enough, it comes out, it's wrong. And you're looking at the design and you realize, oh, I forgot to put a number right there. And it's a number that gets dialed into this machine, you know, and it tells it to do one certain thing that isn't being done. And the guy uh, puts that number in, works fine. You're doing your job, right? So you walk back in the office and you walk back in, you realize... Your hands are filthy. Boring mills are dirty. And, and they're covered with grease and metal shavings and dirt and grime. Now, what's the solution? It's 11 o'clock in the morning. You don't have to go home and take a shower, do you? No. The solution is to go wash your hands. It's, it's like a commonplace thing. You go in the office bathroom, you wash your hands, and then you go back to work doing whatever you're doing. And the, the idea is that people don't take a bath or a shower every time they get dirty. In fact, your shower at the beginning of the day, or your bath, it like cleanses you to do most everything you would ever need to do through a course of a day. But there's a remedy for all the ways in which you might get dirtied, like your hands or your face, as you go through the day, and that is that you can wash. You don't have to take a bath again, because you're already clean. But that part of you that's become dirtied, you can wash it off. And that's the whole point. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. The part in the ancient world that would easily, through the travels of the day, pick up dirt. But he's completely clean. Now, obviously, the point that Jesus is making is not about taking a bath. It's about some spiritual cleansing that it's pointing forward to. Can I note an interesting fact? All of the apostles most likely, and Jesus, would have had a bath that day because Passover required a ritual bath for the worshipers. Now, they bathed more than once a year, but at Passover, they would bathe themselves before the Passover meal, and it was meant to be a sign before God that they were pure before God, not just that they'd cleanse their bodies, but that their hearts were clean. They were seeking to come into God's presence and celebrate the Passover in that state. So when Jesus is talking to them, he says, when you've bathed, you don't need to take a bath again. It's like it had immediate significance, but they dirtied their feet, and so he needed to wash them. But he's pointing beyond it to the cleansing from sin in two different ways that come out here, and I want to talk about them. The first one is the bath. Note on verse 10, he starts to use two words. He who has bathed does not need to wash Just like in English, it's two different words. The word bathe usually refers to cleansing the whole body. The word wash can mean to wash one part of the body, and that's how he uses it here. So he refers first to the bath. He was bathed, does not need to wash. He's been cleansed. And what he's pointing towards is his cleansing of sinful people from the stain of sin. That this was going to be accomplished on the cross that he was about to face the next day when he was going to accomplish the atonement for sin in the place of sinners, on the basis of that and of his resurrection from the dead, he would have the power to cleanse any person who came to him. And the idea is that Jesus' death provides, first of all, a bath. It provides eternal forgiveness of sins, eternal cleansing from the guilt and the penalty and the power of sin. That's an important thing to grasp. It's shown in the words bathed and washed here. And and it's important because it's the most basic aspect of what the Christian message is all about. It has to do with being cleansed from sin before God. Now, remember, Jesus died long ago in 33 AD, about this time of year. Uh, When Jesus died... He died in the place of sinful people, but he died at a point in time It was accomplished. In fact, according to the Gospel of John, the last words he said on the cross were, it is finished, it is accomplished. The work that he came to do was accomplished. However, there were people who had lived before Jesus who looked forward to God's forgiveness, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus' death on the cross pointed backwards, and it accomplished Forgiveness for those who had already lived but trusted in the forgiveness of God through the one he would provide. But it also pointed forward. So you have to separate between the death of Jesus in which he accomplished something. That, so to speak, provides the water of cleansing and the application of that, which occurs at various moments in time for people as we come to faith in Christ. As a person comes to faith... The application of the water is made where that which was purchased by Christ is now applied to the person, and that is the bath, to use the illustration that he's using here. He's cleansing their soul. You can experience the relief of sins immediately, finally, through the death of Jesus and trusting in that. It's like a one-time, unrepeatable act. It restores you to relationship with God. It frees you from the penalty for sin forever and is a source of freeing you from sin and all of its power. All of that was purchased at the cross. And becoming a Christian involves that transaction, looking to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. That's why Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. You don't belong to me if you don't experience this washing. Now, this washing involves recognition of the need. Like a person doesn't wash, doesn't bathe if they don't realize they're dirty. Well, when they realize they're dirty, they take a bath. And so a person has to first recognize the need to be cleansed, to be forgiven in this case. It also involves a conscious reliance on Jesus to do that. That's what faith is. Trusting in Jesus to clean you up to forgive your sins, to restore you to God, and it involves a result that is like an inner conviction that what Jesus promised belongs to me. However, the subjective experience of that might take time. People have to learn to walk through life and experience with guilt and those how to deal with that and experience the cleansing. But the cleansing itself happens at one point in time. Now, imagine, if you will, a 12-year-old girl, let's say, a girl who's growing up, and and let's say she lies to her parents in some significant way, and uh, she's caught, and she feels very bad about it, and this is really bothering her. She feels guilty inside. Imagine that this little girl goes to bed one night, and she's thinking about it, and it's troubling her. In relationship with God. Imagine she's a girl who grew up going to something like Creative Arts Camp, and she's heard these different things about Jesus dying for sins, and she's a compliant child. She's always believed that that's true, but now she has a sense that I I feel guilty before God. Like, what I did doesn't just hurt my parents. I'm sorry about that, but it has something to do with the the, the fact that God is unhappy with this. How am I going to deal with this? She's um, heard the things that have been talked about Jesus, but she sees it in a new way. Now she sees what she only understood in kind of an intellectual form before. She sees sin as a barrier between herself and God. That's easy to understand, but until it's a specific, real sin, few people don't let it enter in. But then, when they let something enter in, they think, that's, that's what this is all about. I feel this guilt. It it hinders, it, it's breaking something in, in me, with God, and I want to change to that. So she knows that she's sinned in many ways, but that's just been kind of like, well, everybody sometimes is cruel or unhappy or not nice or whatever, but here's a way in which I have disobeyed God, And, and she realizes that's why Jesus died. All those things I've heard, that's what it means, and that night, laying there in her bed, she 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 thanks Jesus for dying for her sins. Thank you for taking my place. And you have promised that you forgive the sins of people who, who trust in you. And she feels this sense of freedom inside. Have you ever had that? I mean, that's what faith involves. It's that sense that whatever barrier there was between God and I, it's now taken away. To use Jesus' illustration, it's washed. The dirt that had filthied my soul is washed away, at least in the sight of God, the one who matters. That's what we're talking about here. Now, let's take a step further. He says in the passage, the one who was bathed does not need to wash. That's what I've been talking about so far. Jesus' death on the cross provides eternal forgiveness of sins, cleansing, assurance, certainty of it. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, except for his feet. That is, a a person who's taking a bath is clean for the rest of the day, for the whole course of life, everything he's going to do that day, except for that part that gets dirtied by contact with a sinful world. As you make your way through a journey through an ancient street, you become mired with dirt that needs to be washed off. You don't have to take a bath again, but you have to wash it off, and the foot washing would do that. But also as you make your way through life, you find yourself being stained by sin in various ways from a sinful world. You pick up attitudes and behaviors and speech that uh, characterizes this world and not the way God wants you to live. And just as you don't have to take a shower every time you realize that you get your hands dirty, you can just wash your hands. Jesus says the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet the part that has become dirty. And, and so there's a second thing about the death of Jesus. It doesn't only cleanse us from sin eternally, but it provides for us this temporal, daily cleansing from sin so that we can maintain our walk with God, enjoy our fellowship with God. This one cannot, need not be repeated. It cleanses the soul for all eternity. This one cleanses our feet our hands, or our head, or whatever part of us has become stained in our way through this world by adopting behaviors and standards and values of this world. So in other words, Jesus' death doesn't only provide eternal forgiveness of sins, it also provides us ongoing daily cleansing that we need in order to live for God and follow him in discipleship. Now imagine the same 12-year-old girl we thought about a minute ago, and now she's 28 years old. She's grown up. And, and as she was growing up, she learned a lot about her relationship with God, and she thinks of herself as a pretty good person, and generally, sp- she's speaking, she is, but she knows there's one part of her life that isn't, isn't the way, at least God says it ought to be. Like many of her friends, she has adopted a practice that is more the norm in today's world. That is, if she's dating a young man, if she's in a dating relationship, it won't be long before they're in a sexual relationship with each other. And, and this has happened a number of times in her life, and most of her friends that she spends time with, it doesn't bother them. That's the way adult life works. That's just how they figure that life goes. But because of her relationship with Jesus and the facts that she regards as important, there's something that nags at her. What she honestly figures is, I really love Jesus, but that's just one part of his teaching that I think is too steep. I don't think it really applies in the kind of world in which I find myself. But she's always troubled by that feeling, even though that's what she thinks inside. That's what her friends tell her if she says she's bothered by it. But let's say she goes to a wedding of a girl that she grew up with uh, uh, in the church, and a, a Christian girl, and, and while well, the pastor or whoever is speaking up front, he, he says some things about the Christian view of marriage, and it like really strikes home to her. She, she thinks to herself, you know, if I get married, that's the kind of person I want to be. And, and it's about the importance of marriage and family and sexual purity and, and all of that. And so she has a ready-made remedy for her problem. This girl is a Christian, even though there's one area of her life that is really pretty drastically out of whack, we might say. She has a remedy, and the remedy is if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And she can go to God, and she can bring to him the reality of her behavior and her thought processes that she realized haven't really honored God, and she can know that on the same source out of which she was forgiven and felt cleansed at age 12, out of that same source, from the same water, by the same death on the cross, there is forgiveness for the stain of sin that she has picked up as she's traveled through this world and it shows up in her behavior. She can change her direction and move in a different direction ask for God's power to do that. That's what this passage is about. It's about the cleansing that we receive. And there's a difference between the one-time cleansing, the bath, that brings forgiveness for all eternity, and the ongoing cleansing from the stain of sin that we can experience So at the beginning of our time this morning, I invited you to take a look inside. Each person would see something different, I suppose. They might see greed or bitterness that is building up over something. They might see anger at their spouse or unkind words that they spoke to someone else. Or they might see matters of immorality and more significant behaviors. Whatever it is we see, we're invited to bring on the basis of this wonderful promise Bring our hearts to God and ask him to cleanse us. Now, isn't it interesting that John, who wrote 1 John, was the same one who was sitting in the upper room with Jesus and wrote the Gospel of John. It's interesting that that one sentence is like a teaching way, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. It's like a way of saying in blunt outward form, what Jesus illustrated to him, what he experienced in a symbolic way, though he didn't even understand it at the time when he sat at the Last Supper. Can I just note, it goes in one more direction. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't leave it there. That obviously the most significant, but it says, beginning in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? And he goes on and he says, you know, there is a, there is something you can't understand. This first thing about cleansing, they couldn't understand it until they could understand death for sins and resurrection and the whole purpose of the Messiah. They weren't going to grasp that completely. But he, he, he leaves them with one thing. You can't understand this, what I've given to you is an example of humble service. This is the way you ought to live and to treat one another. This isn't just something that I did to teach you a sublime spiritual truth, though it is that, it's something that I did so that you would know that the whole basis of discipleship is seeking to live as a humble servant. And if I, the Messiah, put myself in the most menial role imaginable in our society, none of my followers should ever shy away from doing the same thing. But before... He had said to them something they would understand. He told them something they wouldn't understand. But what what we have is we have the ability now to look back. I mean, we look at this passage, and we're looking at it through the rest of the Bible. We're looking at it through the cross and the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus at the right hand of the Father and all the things that have been taught We're we're able to look back and see that everything that he said, that he said they wouldn't understand, when he rose from the dead, it like brought it all together. And so they were the ones who went out, and they taught using specific Old Testament passages. They said, this is what God meant for you to understand, and this is what was fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. In our earthly pilgrimage, we can rely on the same truths today. Let's give thanks to God. Our Father, again, we thank you that you are a God not only of glory but also of grace. And we think of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ in washing the apostles' feet and that that is a picture of what he wants to do to human beings, to all who come to him and trust in his death on the cross, that that is the source of forgiveness and cleansing. I pray that you would grant by your spirit the full assurance of faith to every person who looks to you and trusts to you, in you alone. We pray this with gratitude in Jesus' name.